For those of you joining us for the first time, I am Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods. Uh, we've been hosting these events for really over 20 years now. Um, I have uh, only recently had the opportunity to uh, meet today's speakers, but uh, Longwoods has been working with TELUS for many years. Uh, we've co-created a number of great events in the past. Uh, we supported each other in our work within the healthcare system. Today will be a valuable and informative event. Uh, of course, uh, Longwoods relies on the support of our member organizations. Without their uh, annual contribution to our events, we would not be able to produce them. Uh, helping to support today's event, we have from Healthcare Excellence Canada, Carol Fancott is online. Uh, from Health Pro Canada, Christine Donaldson is online. From HEROC, Joanne Noble is here. From BD, Michelle Bracken is here. And of course, TELUS is supporting today's event. As a quick reminder, Please feel free to um, ask questions in the Q&A with the bottom of your screen and our speakers will do the best they can to address them at the end of their presentation. Um, as always, you're not here to listen to me. So I would now like to hand the show over to Juggy Sirhota and Diane McIntosh. Juggy, Diane, it's all yours. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you, Matthew, so much for inviting us here today. Jaggi and I are really excited, and I, I feel really honored to be here. Uh, I am the Chief Neuroscience Officer at TELUS, but before that, I was just a plain old psychiatrist. Uh, Jaggi is our Vice President of Consumer Health. So we all know COVID-19 has had really a profound impact on all aspects of our life, and unfortunately also on our broader healthcare system that we all depend on. We're more than a year into this pandemic and it uh, seems like it's not really getting much easier to navigate. I think most of us ran over on adrenaline over 2020. And I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like I'm running on fumes at the moment. We're just feeling like we're slowly crawling to the finish line with lots of scary stuff out there that's not making uh, most of us feel all that much better. However, despite the great challenges we're facing, the pandemic does provide some important opportunities to expand our thinking and accelerate digital innovation in the medical world. And this is really at an unprecedented pace. Seemingly overnight, new healthcare solutions have been leveraged across Canada to keep up with the urgent need to support and care for our communities during these very, very stressful and uncertain times. So while the pandemic certainly presents some unique challenges, we're trying to preserve the capacity of our healthcare system by maintaining our own health and also the health and safety of others. It's really hard to focus on your own self-care when you're not supposed to go outdoors. When most of us are really quite fearful, some people even of going to the grocery store. We also have some mental health, significant mental health impacts that are associated with this pandemic, they're real. And they result from what I call the COVID-19 mental health trifecta. One part of that trifecta is health anxiety. All of us have some degree of health anxiety, whether it's for us or ourselves personally, for our loved ones, or for our community, the, the wider world, how will this change our lives? Then we have some financial concerns, and it might not be yourself personally with job loss, but maybe someone you love. Maybe you're coming up to retirement and you're worried about your RSPs or what's happening with the world economy. 
And finally, we have the real mental and physical impacts of quarantine and of social isolation, particularly because the greatest protector of mental health is social support. And this pandemic has kept us away from our, our friends and family. I do think it's important to point out, however, that loneliness and isolation have a critical impact on physical health. So it's actually been estimated to be on par with sedentary lifestyle, obesity, and smoking half a pack per day. So when I talk about mental health, I'm also talking about the impact on physical health from mental health struggles. Our understanding of the causes of mental illness is mounting by the day. And as a psychiatrist, this is very exciting for me. We know unequivocally that stress is associated with the onset of mental illness, but there doesn't have to be stress. Just to keep in mind though, no one really has a stress-free life. However, the stress that is most clearly associated with mental illness is chronic and unpredictable stress. It in fact is an animal model that we uh, use to produce depression when looking at certain tools to treat mental illness. So chronic unpredictable stress is the one that is most impactful on the brain. And unfortunately, it is the stress that most of us are enduring right now during this pandemic. Our mental health system is already poor and it was already unable to react to all but the most urgent needs. And even then we didn't do a terrific job. And COVID-19 will only exacerbate those matters. When you look at some of the stats, Stats Canada came out with um, uh, some data looking at what's happened to mental health since the onset of COVID-19. And just over 50% of Canadians have now reported that they have excellent or good mental health. That's a drop of almost 15% since 2019. What worries me most is the fact that people are not going to their doctor even with serious health complications and certainly not related to their mental health concerns. This, I just read a paper a couple of weeks ago from The Lancet talking about uh, what I fear is going to be a tsunami of mental health issues coming towards us because people aren't going to talk to their doctor about their mental health, about self-harm, about suicidal thoughts. My concern here is that we're going to have this flood of individuals who have had untreated mental illness for an extended period, which means that it's more likely to be difficult to treat with more cognitive impairment and more functional impairment associated with it, that the, the self-harm will be at a, a, a more severe level and that the suicidal ideation will not be passive, but more active and much more worrisome. The hardest hit among us are, of course, those people we're all worried about the frontline healthcare workers and first responders. We have seen their bravery, their grit, their resolve, but we have to remember that empathy and energy have their limits. Burnout was already at sky high, really, rates for healthcare professionals before the pandemic hit. Uh, and they're all facing now the same chronic and unpredictable stress that we're all facing, but also with very high levels of expectation and, and lack of sureness and, and a sense of security within their own roles in hospitals across the, the country. So frontline, uh, sorry, healthcare workers and first responders are also less likely to ask for help. In addition to dealing with shift work and erratic schedules, which of course make access to healthcare even more difficult, they also are often fearful of asking for help. 
we see public examples of their bravery and their selflessness with frontline healthcare workers, with first, first responders, but asking for help for them, even though they understand where mental health issues come from and how common they are, can be seen as a sign of weakness. We have to remember that these guys are people too. They're not invincible. I have seen firsthand because I treat doctors, nurses, police, RCMP, and for several years, Canadian Forces members, they rarely seek help before they're really ill. Uh, that means their symptoms, as I said, are harder to treat with more cognitive impairment and more functional impairment in all of their roles, not just professionally, but in their roles as parents and as partners, as friends. That makes them more vulnerable to subsequent episodes of mental illness. It's critical to make the point that stigma related to mental illness also lives in medicine. As hard as it is for me to say that, it is true. So doctors perpetuate that stigma when they teach interns and residents and medical students. They talk about it amongst their peers. It makes it even more challenging for them to seek help. My favorite patients are surgeons. They tend to think psychiatrists are a bunch of losers and uh, that's only until they need one. So when I have a surgeon as a patient, this is a big win. We have to tackle this virus, but how do we do that while preventing other health priorities like mental illness from falling through the cracks? It's clear that our mental health challenges will not be adequately managed by a one size fits all approach. Mental illnesses are brain illnesses. I went to medical school because I needed to learn about the mind and the body. They are connected. If you have diabetes, heart disease, obesity, inflammatory illness, that increases your risk for mental illness. And the reverse is also true. If you have a mental illness and that includes ADHD, you have an increased risk of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and other illnesses. We need to make mental health a priority in primary care conversations. We need to share this understanding that there must be a holistic approach to healthcare. It is essential. If you're not someone who loves to read scientific evidence like I do, you may be shocked to see the real scientific data regarding the impact of the gut microbiome. Those are the microorganisms that live in your bowel on brain function. There is great news about how mild to moderate intensity exercise actually grows brain cells. It provokes neurogenesis and can help to treat mild to moderate depression or stave off a relapse of a ser serious depression. One element of our, that we're working on to strengthen our mental health efforts is through digital technology. So where I work and my job at TELUS Health as Chief Neuroscience Officer is this mission to transform mental health care in Canada, to expand access to personalized evidence-based care for all Canadians. I call it actually evidence-informed healthcare because we need to use the scientific evidence, but there is also an art to what we do in medicine. So evidence-informed healthcare that is personalized for the needs of patients, patient-centered. I've actually been providing virtual care to my patients for several years. So I know from personal experience, the primary barrier to new technologies is often the physician, not the patient. And for me, offering virtual care to my patients was really, it was freeing for me, but for my patients, they were delighted. 
I met them where they were, where they needed to be. I see police in their police cars. I see people at Starbucks, wherever they want to see me without having to get childcare, drive for three hours, put money in the meter. So really it has transformed healthcare for me and I believe for my patients. And it's why virtual care tools are so critical. In response to COVID-19, the demand for virtual care, of course, skyrocketed. And we saw this firsthand with our own virtual care solutions. The demand grew tenfold in just the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. So leveraging virtual tools and technologies enables broader access to care, especially in rural and remote communities where resources are limited. Technology can also enable access to supports and interventions that address concerns across the mental health spectrum. We've developed tools that build resilience with relevant content and proven approaches and services that allow direct access to frontline workers, to first responders at times of crisis. This is one thing that I'm particularly proud of is my involvement with Esprit by Telus Health, which is a tool that targets the needs of frontline workers and first responders. And it was actually built with the uh, involvement, the direct involvement of people who use the content in their own language, because police, military, firefighters, they all have their own way of communicating, paramedics. And so we use the language of the individuals who we use it. It was designed to help those organizations to provide access to mental health support for those individuals that's tailored to their needs. It, it is a resource hub really that quickly allows access to clinically informed, occupationally specific information, content, but also group calling features. So you can have a counseling session, you can have peer support, and also a specific resource list that allows for one click navigation to mental health resources, like a crisis line, for instance. In the case of Esprit, it's technology as a delivery mechanism, and it's designed to remove some of those barriers that have traditionally kept some Canadians, especially helping Canadians, from receiving mental health support. Now, it's really important to remember that these innovations are not meant to be Band-Aid solutions. We need to look to the future, and we need to focus on collaboration, integration, and continuity of care. This is essential for both our physical and our mental health. I've often heard people say, young people don't care about continuity of care. You don't care about continuity of care if you've never had it. But it is critical that all of our solutions allow for family practitioners, nurse practitioners to be able to access the information that patients have been given. Continuity of care really does improve the quality of outcomes and patients' lives. And it's essential that all of our solutions work like that. I wanna finish by mentioning that too often people living with mental illness don't just face stigma, they also face scorn and humiliation within our healthcare system. There's lots of reasons that people offer for why that sometimes happens. We're too busy, we're overworked. There are scary people that come into this emergency department. That's just no excuse for the utter lack of compassion and empathy, and in some cases, abuse that too many people face when they try to access healthcare. As long as I am involved in trying to shift mental healthcare landscape, my role will be predicated on being patient-centered and on empathy, which is too often missing in healthcare delivery in general. So although devastating in many ways, 
What I learned from treating PTSD over many years is that out of terrible things, really good things can come. You can't change the fact that something really horrible happened, but you can change how it impacts you. You can grow and you can do incredible things as a result of that experience. So let's not lose this momentum that we built over the last year, even though we're all feeling like we're running on fumes. With the adoption of digital technologies on the rise, we must now ensure that such innovations like virtual care are complementary to our healthcare system, support the overall health ecosystem, and continue to make positive impacts on the lives of Canadians. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Juggy, now. Thank you so much, Diane, and good morning, everyone. And I think what's, you know, really strikes me from what Diane was talking about is we're all impacted uh, in some way on the mental health front. I don't think there's any group, uh, anyone that's on this call today is immune from some of those detrimental impacts uh, on the mental health side. As Diane mentioned, the demand for virtual care really did grow rapidly following the onset of the pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 was the catalyst for a change in a system where silos and barriers had traditionally limited the reach and capacity for virtual care. There are three pretty important studies that helped illustrate that. First, according to a May 2019 Canada Health InfoWay survey, only 4% of primary care visits in Canada were conducted virtually. The number now sits at 60% and is growing every day. To add to that, in February of last year, the CMA uh, reported that less than 25% of Canadian family physicians made themselves available by email and only 4% provided video visits. And by June of 2020, virtual care represented more than 70% of ambulatory care provided by hospitals uh, and doctor's offices. Many of you will also know that last week, Canada Health InfoWay shared their own study from this past year. And what it showed was a number of key findings, including a patient satisfaction rating of 89% with virtual care. And also very importantly, that on average, each patient saved around $100 per virtual visit as compared to an in-clinic visit. And so that's comprised of things like money saved from childcare costs, as well as time required off work, some commuting costs as well. And, and importantly as well, the study showed that over 75% of the virtual visits were actually covered by a provincial health plan. This is really key because as we see the mental health crisis burgeon, we know that we need a multi-dimensional support system coming from employers, but also more generally from government. Mental health care support, I think, almost needs to become as ubiquitous as primary care, at least for the mid to, the mid to, to, to long term here. And indeed, I know that um, of our primary care visits that we conduct through Babylon Vitalis Health, you know, 15% of all of those visits are already mental health oriented. And I know that number is growing because we're watching it really carefully. We will see trauma, panic and anxiety disorders volumize now and post COVID. Uh, we've been preparing for this over the past year. We're already helping to treat Canadians now, uh, but there's a lot, a lot of work yet to be done here. The pandemic forced Canadian healthcare leaders and government to really pivot and find additional options to deliver care and meet immediate patient needs. By leveraging virtual care, we're not only working to alleviate the pressure on hospitals and clinics, but to address overall care for Canadians. And as Diane mentioned, continuity of care is critical. And we're delivering these services to complement and strengthen our current structure. Our virtual care service helps to fill the gap for those 5 million Canadians who do not have access to a regular family doctor. 
Um, it, it is meant to address those people that are having access difficulties in rural and remote communities where maybe they have access to a doctor once every couple of weeks, if at all, or they need to drive four hours uh, to go to a hospital ER. It's also meant for everyone who's seeking after hours care and those people who actually don't wanna go into the hospital ERs. And there's a troubling trend there that we know of uh, during COVID-19. So following the first wave of the pandemic, many Canadians feared how a second wave would continue to impact their access to primary care. So in partnership with Nanos Research, we conducted a, a public survey in BC and Ontario uh, last, uh, last summer to really better understand these concerns. What we found is that nearly half of Ontarians and a third of British Columbians were delaying access to medical care for themselves or their loved ones to avoid potential exposure to the virus in medical settings. Um, that's happening now too. Our ERs across the country are really stressed. Many of you will know that we're in the third wave and uh, you know, our, our healthcare professionals, as Diane mentioned, are really struggling. We, we have uh, uh, definitely increased pressure and intensity on those ICUs, on those hospitals. And we know that more and more people are still delaying uh, getting access to care. We don't even know yet what the impact of that delayed care is going to have into the future. Uh, we know that people are having heart attacks at home and they think that it's better for them to be at home versus being in the hospital, you know, if they, they were to catch COVID. But of, of course, the, the detriment to their health is much worse uh, if they're in an emergency situation and are not going uh, to the hospital. The role of virtual care in the pandemic has been twofold. First, it's enabled the delivery of primary care in a patient-centric way at scale, providing care when and where it's needed. It's helped address the immediate healthcare gap that Canadians face. And as Diane said, it's so important to meet Canadians where they are, especially during this time of fear and uncertainty. Secondly, and I, and I really believe importantly, it kept our doctors and our healthcare practitioners safe. They were now able to take care of patients remotely and safely. COVID-19 amplified the need and adoption of virtual care technology and service, and we can expect that it will remain valuable, valuable as we move through the waves and then into a post-pandemic world. To meet the rapid and exponential growth in demand, uh, we at TELUS worked really quickly to develop new tools and adapted, uh, and as well, we ramped up our capacity for existing services to help address those immediate needs. So for instance, in a matter of weeks, we developed a virtual care solution that seamlessly integrated into physician electronic medical records, allowing all doctors uh, to enable them to conduct secure virtual visits with their own patients. Uh, and this is something doctors have been requesting and we're proud to have provided this tool to them, enabling their patients to continue to receive care. We also repurposed many of our mobile health clinics across the country as part of our Health for Good program to help people who are experiencing homelessness to also stay safe and protected from COVID through primary care support, but also with COVID testing. And now we're helping with vaccinations as well, predominantly in Ontario. We all believe access, equal access to healthcare. And you know, when we're looking at the needs of Canadians, you know, we need to look at all Canadians and we wanna deliver services that support and work for the patient and not just for the system. Babylon by TELUS Health has enabled Canadians without access to a family doctor or those that are in need of after-hours support to have one-on-one -on -one virtual consultations with a locally licensed physician in Canada. In the face of increasing demand, we accelerated the expansion of the service from BC last year to the rest of Canada. 
The service supports continuity of care by enabling users to have their consultation notes shared with their family physician if they have one. And here we offer both primary care and mental health care support with our high quality doctors and our counselors. As Diane touched on, mental health issues are not only expected to grow following the pandemic as a result of burnout and other factors, but also because of COVID-19 itself. And according to that recent survey uh, and the study that The Lancet uh, published, you know, patients who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 and particularly those who required hospitalization, they're at an increased risk of neurological and psychiatric outcomes, including dementia, mood and anxiety disorders. And that's just what we're learning right now. The study was able to evaluate this data and investigate incidence rate by looking at the electronic health records in the six months following the diagnosis. And then of course, there are also people who are living through grief and loss of loved ones as a result of COVID. Our seniors need a lot more support. Uh, our senior support services like our personal emergency response service called Living Well Companion, it surged with demand as well. And in this case here, we offer support for seniors who live at home and allow them and enable them to do so with a peace of mind knowing that we can dispatch emergency services to them 24 seven if they need it. We're the largest Canadian owned purse company in Canada right now, but we're also the most affordable. We adapted our service to match the multicultural needs of patients across Canada. And now we're the only provider to offer emergency support service in many languages in addition to English and French, including Punjabi, Cantonese, Mandarin, and many more. So leveraging these tools not only enables us to look at the issues directly in front of us, but also that will continue to pose obstacles for our healthcare system into the future. TELUS was pretty quick to help address the immediate needs of Canadians, whether it's through our virtual care offerings, our mobile health clinics that provided testing and care, or through our $85 million worth of donation to COVID-19 relief efforts across the country. But, but as Diane mentioned, we need to continue building and implementing these solutions within a connected and collaborative ecosystem. COVID was certainly a catalyst for digital health as it was for many, many industries. We need to really capitalize on this opportunity to drive lasting and much needed transformation into the industry for the benefit of patients. We need to foster and invest in an infrastructure that really truly facilitates insights and data sharing allowing us to not only provide holistic and coordinated care to Canadians, but to build on the solutions that we already have and develop new tools that can further enhance patient health outcomes. And in doing so, we'll be able to you know, be more proactive in our approach to healthcare rather than just reactive as we were forced to be at the beginning of COVID. At TELUS Health, we are focused on harnessing the power of technology to ultimately enable better health experiences for Canadians and at a lesser cost to the system. Uh, a critically important step to achieving that goal is the development and use of tools that work to break down those silos and allow everyone to work within the system. Healthcare professionals and patients allow them to engage with one another. For instance, more advanced electronic medical records now include features already, such as appointment booking capabilities, automated reminders, secure encrypted messaging and video visits, intake assessment tools, and those really empower patients to play a more proactive role in their healthcare journey. Uh, and these tools also streamline processes for physicians, enabling them to focus on what truly matters, which is patient care. And we're not done. We know that there are more improvements that need to be done on that front in through careful deliberation and coordination with our stakeholder groups. Digital technology can also support improved communication between healthcare practitioners and professionals amongst themselves. 
you know, each of them who use different systems to manage health information. Tools like the TELUS Health Exchange, which is a national electronic communication platform open to everyone, supports the seamless flow of information from one system to another. And it gives all key players a full view of a patient's health, such as solutions that have opened the door to data-driven decision-making and certainly will offer now a better continuity of care. And so that's available uh, for those of you that are working on healthcare solutions and you wanna have and drive more collaboration, reach out to us to discuss the telehealth exchange and how you can tap into that. A stronger infrastructure for us is also gonna allow everyone to expand the reach of these innovative solutions to more Canadians. And so here, technology infrastructure is really important. Connectivity is really important. Uh, the role of things like 5G, uh, the technology across Canada, it holds a lot of promise in improving connectivity, providing higher speeds and faster communication, and then potentially helping address access challenges in remote and rural areas. Uh, and again, we wanna think about solutions that help all Canadians, uh, not just those in urban centers. Um, technology can also help evolve the virtual care experience with new capabilities. Imagine things like real-time remote monitoring, telesurgery, immersive education with augmented reality, all while leveraging fixed wireless access bandwidth to support these advanced applications. And of course, uh, better security to continue to protect personal health information as this then grows. So we've, we, we've made substantial progress, all of us collectively we have, even in the face of COVID-19 and perhaps actually because of it. Uh, patient needs really did drive the sea change. Those needs drove accelerated adoption. Healthcare professionals needed help to adapt to those needs and governments helped accommodate this acceleration as well. Uh, so with this change, we saw rapid growth in the demand for virtual care tools. Babylon by Telus Health, as Diane mentioned, it grew exponentially. Uh, it's now being downloaded by someone in Canada every 30 seconds and every 90 seconds, someone's having an appointment with one of our physicians. So that's meeting those patient needs. Patient demand, satisfaction, and cost savings are there, and we certainly, we shouldn't lose this momentum. Uh, it's like asking someone who's got access to mobile banking to give their, give their mobile banking access up and go back to the normal way of doing things. Like, it, it just can't happen, and patients won't allow for it either. But ultimately, the technology here is really a means to an end. The technology is not being leveraged by health professionals and implemented in a way that's effectively supporting better patient care. It's not doing what it's supposed to. At TELUS Health, we're committed to helping build this collaborative ecosystem in an effort to strengthen care for all Canadians. We've been doing it for more than a decade and we don't see that stopping anytime soon. We can really turn this current necessity into constant curiosity that really pushes and advances us even further and continues to improve the health and well-being of Canadians and their families now and to the future. I think the focus always should start on patient needs that are currently unmet in the healthcare ecosystem. And clearly COVID-19 was instructive on what those needs are, at least in form of better access, but we need to continue to adapt, continue to innovate and collaborate with one another and with government as this landscape and as the needs continue to evolve. And I would encourage us and especially government to think about mental health now, like we've thought about primary care in the past, because I believe it is as essential Stigma, accessibility, quality, supply of mental health care professionals, and affordability are all going to need to be addressed in order to properly take care of each other now and into the post-COVID future. Thank you so much for inviting both Diane and I to come and speak with you today.
Wonderful. Thank you, Diane and Juggy. Um, and thank you everyone who have been uh, typing in their questions in the Q&A feature. Um, we'll get started actually with a question specifically for Diane. Um, a couple of people are wondering if there are clinical criteria for deciding when virtual mental health approaches are appropriate. Um, and how do you know when a virtual approach is the best way to treat a patient? Really interesting question. As a community psychiatrist, all of my patients um, are able to be seen uh, virtually. So, but you know, a lot of people would think, well, all you need to do is hear a voice. In fact, seeing my patients is critically important. Of course, not surprisingly, because of body language and you're able to see how someone looks and whether they're themselves, but also some side effects related to some medications. For instance, tardive dyskinesia, I can see facial movements, changes in the way someone appears that they may not even notice themselves. So um, if you have someone in, a, in the community that generally sees you that in that manner, seeing them virtually is absolutely fine, but I do need to see them. It's only times when someone really lacks insight, won't connect, uh, isn't, you know, they're, they're having issues perhaps around paranoia or that they're in a manic state. So they're, they're highly escalated where they would need to be seen perhaps in an emergency department. That's the only time when I don't think that virtual care is, is really appropriate. I am one of those physicians that actually, or psychiatrists that actually does blood pressure and, and make sure we should all be monitoring, uh, lab work as well, because of what I mentioned about the metabolic issues associated with mental illness, but all of those can be uh, done virtually and sent directly to my EMR. So almost everyone I see is able to uh, be seen virtually. I will sort of answer another question there though, that we need more data. It was nice that Juggy pointed out the 80% satisfaction with virtual care through Canada Health InfoWay, but there is a lot of research going on and actually assessing whether or not there is some patients that are, are more appropriate, what, what are we missing in that virtual care connection through mental health? So there's more data out there to come. There's sort of trickles of it, but uh, we're looking with Intellis Health at how can we ensure we have great measurement that we don't just measure patient satisfaction with the experience, but actual outcome measures, changes in clinical scales, um, algorithm-based care, which we know improves outcomes, all of these things that we're able to do um, and, and measure carefully and then provide feedback to the greater community about how to do things better. Wonderful. Thanks, Diane. Um, this time for Juggy, in talking about uh, virtual care, do you believe that clinical practice has now changed um, for the long run, given the acceptance and rapid adoption of virtual care uh, to ensure the continuity of care for patients? What will be the appropriate mix of virtual care relative to in-person care from your perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, again, I, I don't think there's any turning back. I think that you know, the other, the other piece of, of this to look at is from when you move from the patient is, is look at the healthcare professional and look at the life work balance that perhaps this technology can offer doctors as well so that they don't have to be physically situated in a clinic all day long. And, you know, many healthcare practitioners and family doctors will tell us that they spend so much time doing administrative work and the technology can help advance all of that. It automates it. It helps automate triage as an example so that doctors don't need to do a lot of intake. It's already there for them. They already know what type of patient is coming in, what the issue is. And then the tools and the digital technology in the background will help automate the processing up for that patient as well. So it's, it, it's relieving some of that administrative burden from, from doctors uh, as well. I think that 
you know, what's important to also note is virtual care technology is not for everything. Uh, and, you know, importantly, we've just pointed out a couple of examples that we're watching carefully to see what type of, you know, use cases are the most appropriate from a mental health standpoint, and we will pivot and adapt based on what we're learning. It's certainly not there for emergency situations. Uh, if you have an emergency situation, you need to go into the ER. Uh, you should not be using virtual care technology for that purpose. Uh, and, you know, but when you think about primary care and about what we've seen and what we've seen in studies as well, is around 80% of the reasons why you would need to go see your family doctor, you actually can have that remedied through a virtual care visit. What we also see is from our visits that we've conducted is that 90% of our patients after their, their visit is completed, their situation is resolved. They don't actually need to go and do anything else. They don't need to be referred to someone else. They don't need to go for blood work. They don't need to get any imaging or testing done after that point. And they feel that the situation that they came to us for has been resolved for primary care. So I think that there is a very good per portion and percentage of the reasons why you would go see your family doctor that you can now conduct virtually. So I think that there will be a hybrid model. Uh, even us from a Babylon perspective, we're not digital only, we're digital first. We have clinics as well. And I think that what we need to see is how does the virtual technology solution make things more efficient and more convenient for patients and not always looking at what makes things more convenient for doctors. And I think that much of the system that we have today has been designed for, you know, the, the doctors and the healthcare practitioners actually, and not necessarily for patients. So I think that the solution will complement both. It will stay here. Uh, I think that we will need to have physical clinic visits for certain issues, no doubt. And we need to make sure that we're building the solution to accommodate for that. And I think that the continuity of care topic that we've touched upon, there's still room for improvement on that front. If you were to look at what the continuity of care situation was before virtual care as an example. So imagine that you go into a hospital or you go into a walk-in clinic somewhere and you have a family doctor, chances are that family doctor actually doesn't know what's going on with you uh, in the moment unless you request to have something sent or you actually initiate something uh, and tell your family doctor what's happening or a family member does. Uh, so that continuity of care in the status quo before virtual care was suboptimal. You know, the services and tools that we're bringing to light in discussion with stakeholder groups and with patients are designed to actually connect that. So through our electronic medical records, but also through uh, the virtual care services, if you are lucky enough to have a family doctor and you want that family doctor to know what's happening with you, and we want your family doctor to know what's happening with you if you're coming to us because we want to improve the continuity of care. All of those notes from that interaction go to your family doctor if you want them to. And that's happening behind the scenes. You don't really need to do anything to make sure that that happens. We've automated that process to ensure that that's happening. And that's to make and improve at the current state of connectivity. Uh, and again, the solutions that we're talking about today, uh, the virtual care solutions in particular, they're supposed to be complementary. Uh, we're not looking at replacing anything that's out there. It's complementing the current system. It's strengthening the current system. And, and in the way that we do that, we don't do that in isolation. We work and spend a lot of time with stakeholders, whether there are healthcare leaders in the healthcare authorities, whether there are you know, ministry uh, professionals that, uh, that we're working with and patients uh, as well to say, you know, what's not working for you? And then we design uh, with them on how we can make it better. Thank you, Jackie. 
Um, there's actually a question that I think both of you could probably answer. Maybe we could start with Diane. Um, with a focus on safe virtual care, can you share any processes and structures that have been hardwired to learn from patient safety incidents um, that are occurring in virtual care environments? In other words, how are we making sure that those interactions are safe um, and we are keeping patients safe? Diane, do you want to start? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about ways that it wouldn't be safe. And um, I actually uh, saw all of my patients yesterday through virtual care, and they were in all kinds of different places. Uh, no one was driving their car and watching me on their phone, <laughs> which would definitely be an unsafe uh, circumstance. Uh, if you're thinking about someone who might be suicidal, and so they're reaching out to me in, in our appointment or telling me about that, because they, uh, if a patient is with me in an appointment, that means they have hope, and that means that they want my help. And so I, I feel like whether they're in my office or whether wherever they are, they're reaching out for help. So it gives me an opportunity to change the trajectory of the situation. And that doesn't happen infrequently where people talk about maybe escalating suicidal thoughts, uh, maybe moving into a plan. I'm not sure if that's what you mean with regard to safety. Uh, Juggy, did you have a, sure. a different take on that? Yeah, for sure. You know, our, our doctors are trained to watch for cues, just as Diane was referring to previously, uh, to watch for cues if the situation requires emergency situation. And of course, we would have access to dispatch 911 uh, and, and get emergency services to that patient. Uh, so that's in place. I would say that in terms of the interaction between the patient and the doctor, you know, those, those interactions are, those, we're video, they're videoed. And uh, we have access to that video. Uh, we do audit them. So our chief medical officer will audit those videos in the case of where there was, you know, something that requires more investigation between the patient and the professional. And that video is there to protect both the patient and it's also there to protect uh, the practitioner as well. So that is in place to make sure that those um, interactions remain safe. And, and, and as Diane mentioned, you're not physically in the same location, of course, right? So you have that, uh, that technology safety as well uh, for the doctor and also for the patient. I, I would want to add the point that we are really centered on a couple of things. One is being patient-centered, which means the person that is most important in every medical interaction is the patient. Juggy did make the point that some processes are designed around physicians. It's very sad that I have to do these lectures everywhere about uh, the fact that we have to be patient-centered in our healthcare, but that is the reality that we, we are not always. And when we're offering new digital technology, it raises the issue of digital equity, which is really important for us as an organization, the giving that TELUS does. And a lot of it is around ensuring that underservice groups, underrepresented groups are able to access all of these resources. When I joined TELUS just over a year ago, um, I said to Darren at Whistle, the CEO, I would, I want to help you with your customers, with my teammates, but everything I do has to be predicated on improving mental health care for all Canadians. He bought that hook, line and sinker. And I think Juggy also has the same uh, thinking is how do we improve the lives of every Canadian? And that's through quality health care, but also digital equity. Thank you. Um, we actually have gotten a question um, around that, uh, around specifically um, 
digital literacy as an issue and what the barriers are in terms of um, accessing virtual care in this world and, and maybe some populations uh, who, who may have limited access. Um, any comment from either you, Juggy, or Diane on how TELUS specifically is trying to improve that and, and getting people access to the technology that they need? Sure. I can speak uh, just go clinically, Juggy, and then I'll let you speak because you're you're running an organization that that really focuses on that. For myself, in my own clinical practice, there are some people that were more or less able to access the technology, especially initially when you know. I got to tell you, I'm not a tech nerd; <laughs> I'm a medical nerd, so I had to learn as well. And it was really great to work with my MOA, who would help the. And it was mostly the seniors in my practice that found it most challenging to navigate, but once they got it, they loved it. They were the most worried about not seeing me in our regular appointments. And they were the ones that most loved it because they'd have their whole family on their appointments and be able to have, you know, their wife come in midway. And so I thought it's actually been more patient-centered because of the fact that I was at one point before I started doing virtual care, getting people to uh, tape my sessions with me. So they'd be in there and they'd have their phone because their, their loved ones were not sure who's this woman giving you these medications. Why is she doing that? And so this way they were able to share the experience that they had with me. And that was really helpful when partners couldn't come in because they were busy at work. So I, I found that it actually widened the opportunity for their loved ones to, to be part of the process. We don't just treat one patient. When someone has a mental illness, their whole family is affected. And this gives the opportunity in my personal experience for more people to be part of the process if that's what the patient wants. Go ahead, Juggy. Yeah, that's fantastic, Diane. I completely agree. It allows, um, and, and then the records as well allow you to share with your loved ones what actually happened during your appointment if you were by yourself. So imagine today, if you go into a doctor's office, usually there's some concern that you're going to see your doctor. And the chances are that you might forget uh, what was discussed with you and you don't actually end up um, seeing the notes unless you took your notes yourself when you have a primary care visit. And, you know, then when you go and talk to your husband or your spouse or your, or your family, um, you know, you'll ask questions. Well, what do they say about that? And what do they say about this? And you're like, oh, I don't remember all of those details. So here the service is designed to make sure that you don't need to worry about that. The notes are there for you in the service, in the app. You can see notes written in plain language. They're your notes. You can have access to them and share them with whoever you deem appropriate. Uh, and, uh, and that improves your quality of care as well, because all of your visits are like that, not just some of your visits. So you can see that. I think on, on technology adoption, you know, the proof usually is in your adoption. And what I can share with you is that the way that this has exponentially grown and the customer, the, the, the customer and patient satisfaction ratings are important as we're talking about, well, how, what did you think about your care? Did you, did you, did you get your needs addressed? Were you comfortable uh, with what was happening there and what the quality of the healthcare practitioner as well? And, you know, those numbers have held and have, have grown on the mental health side you know, it's a little bit more challenging to make sure that, you know, do they, do they, are they rating the experience? Do they feel good about it? But we need to make sure to, and Diane and I have conversations about this, that the mental health care practitioner, you know, might not be telling you something that you want to hear, and you might have a different perspective there, but it is one important information point. How did the patient feel uh, about the treatment that they were given? And so when you take a look at our adoption rates that have continued to exponentially grow, uh, you know, when I think of, problems with adoption, I would say that on mass, 
Uh, it's not evidenced yet uh, by the masses that are coming to the service and that are continuing to reuse the service. I would say before the pandemic, we saw that the service skewed a little bit younger and it skewed a little bit more female uh, than male because often women are the chief medical officer of the home, taking care of their children, taking care of their spouses, taking care of their families. Uh, and, uh, and so they certainly saw the convenience aspect of this and draw, were drawn to it uh, to great degree. Um, now I would say it's more ubiquitous. It's everybody is using the service. Um, and so the technology also, to Diane's point, allows you to bring a family member into it to help you. And so we see that happening. Uh, you know, the doctor will ask for permission to, you know, if someone else is going to come into the video consultation with them uh, and the patient will give, you know, consent if there's a language barrier issue, there's a cultural barrier issue, uh, you know, diversity on, on many different fronts needs to be taken into account here. And, you know, that individual often is helping the patient as well with the technology. We offer tutorials uh, for people that, uh, you know, are having difficulty understanding how to leverage the technology, but we haven't seen that widespread yet. I would also offer that, you know, we're, we're working at making sure that our, our smartphone technology and our services are available for everyone. And there we have our for good programs. I mentioned our, our health for good program, which is, you know, mobile health clinics across the country that are helping people experiencing homelessness get connected and stay connected into the healthcare system. We also have our mobility for good programs that are helping, you know, uh, underprivileged youth get access to cell phone technology and to smartphones, especially as they age out of uh, foster care. Uh, and then of course we have our seniors programs and offering seniors who are on fixed incomes better access to internet and better access to smartphones so that they also uh, don't have a barrier uh, when they're trying to access this technology. So there's multiple fronts that we're looking at to make sure that again, that we're addressing the server or offering the service for all Canadians and not leaving anyone behind. Great. Thank you, Juggy and Diane. And thank you, everyone. There have been uh, a lot of questions asked and, and we're not really able to uh, get to all of them, but they're all fantastic questions. And um, please do reach out to Juggy and Diane on Twitter. Their handles are on um, the Longwoods website. Um, and I'll hand it over to Matt to close this out. Uh, Juggy, Diane, thank you so much. Uh, you both delivered just as promised. Uh, a couple quick things before we go. Um, yes, we will put together a note for, for Juggy and Diane with because there were a number of questions and we will forward the questions off to them and we'll look and evaluate how we may be able to address those questions further. Um, last note, again, before we're done, uh, May 5th is our next event. Uh, we will be featuring uh, Verna Yu, the president and CEO from Alberta Health Services, and the registration is open for that. Other than that, everybody have a fantastic day and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Bye.